Nadia Marx has turned her early childhood years in the Mediterranean into a full-time career as a novelist, with stories of facing heartbreak and finding new life and love in sunny places like Crete, Greece and Spain. Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Hi, I'm your host, Jenny Wheeler, and in Binge Reading today, Nadia talks about making the transition from working with top models and photographers on London magazines to her new career as a novelist, talking about the restorative powers of sea and sunshine. We've got three copies of Nadia's latest book, One Summer in Crete, to give away to three lucky readers. Enter the draw on our website, thejoysofbingereading.com, or on our Binge Read Facebook page and get lost in an island paradise. Just a reminder, Binge Reading is now on Patreon. For as little as a cup of coffee a month, you can support the show and get exclusive bonus content, like hearing Nadia answer Getting to Know You, the five quickfire questions, as well as the latest gossip from behind the scenes on the show. Check it out on patreon.com that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash the joys of binge reading but now here's Nadia hello Nadia and welcome to the show it's great to have you with us thank you Jenny thank you for asking me to join you look you've had a top career in magazine journalism and we'll talk a little bit about that later but I'd like to talk about the first the transition between being a magazine journalist to becoming a novelist. How did you make that transition? Well, actually, my transition was even more surprising than that because although I did, I worked in magazines all my working career from the age of 20, uh, but actually I wasn't so much a journalist, I was a creative director. I made the transition from being an artist, an art director, a creative director, to writing, although I did it slowly. Uh, once I left working full-time in, in magazines and working with top photographers like David Bailey and Mario Testino and all the top, top people and models and, and all that and traveling the world doing fashion shoots and everything, um, I decided I did that for 20 years. I decided I wanted to write. And I left that side of magazines and started doing freelance journalism and doing celebrity interviews and emotional features and that kind of thing. And then I started writing novels. So I did, my journey was quite um, um, unusual one. Fantastic. And it strikes me that magazine experience it would have given you a huge amount of material that you could have written contemporary novels from and they would have been fascinating because of all the uh, inside sort of information you had. But instead of that, you've chosen to go back to your roots and write in this niche of Mediterranean stories, stories set in Greece, Cyprus, Spain, and stories about sort of the village culture and how it interfaces with family life today. So what drew you to that particular area, do you think? Yeah, 
to do, of course, uh, once formative years. I grew up, I, I lived in Cyprus until I was 12. So I was, I was young. And then I came to England with my family. But those formative years really stayed with me. They kind of revisit me in terms of how I feel. And every time I, I go to a hot country, Mediterranean country, it all comes tumbling back. But I'm also very interested in families and people and human interactions and family secrets, especially because I believe every family has some kind of secret. And the more you delve into people's lives, the more you realize nothing is simple. There is always something surprising that you find. And and for some reason, that's what that's how it it manifested itself. My writing and my novels they took that turn. And you're quite right. I could have written about the world of magazines. Um, I guess the world of contemporary London life does come always comes into my writing because I usually start my books in London and then I move back and I I move back and forth in in time and culture so yeah that's that was the main reason why i i was drawn to that i didn't i didn't choose it i think it chose me more than i chose it when i started writing that's how i that's what attracted me i did my first two books were a teen fiction they were you know the the genre of 12 to 15 and they were very much autobiographical. I, I wrote about a young girl coming to England from a different culture. Because when I came to England, I didn't speak any English. I was 12, but I had just finished elementary school. But I didn't speak. I had to learn the language here. And there was a lot of alienation and feeling having to assimilate myself into the culture. I, I used that experience. But then I went, moved on to the adult fiction and again, used my own experiences and thoughts of the Mediterranean. Yeah. It must have been a bit of a double whammy. You know, you're just entering teen years when that time of being identified with the crowd is so important. You're kind of switching almost from being in a family to being in a in a teen group, an age group, aren't you? And to be a little bit out of touch because of the language, that must have been quite a difficult experience to, to kind of um, ride the waves of it was it was very it was very difficult I, I the way I described it in my first book with my first book was called making sense which it, I was trying to make sense of everything when yeah. I arrived there I made the girl you know I, it was it, I drew from my experiences but of course it was a novel it wasn't an autobiography and I made the girl a little older so she was more of a teenager she was 14 and she was you know uh, even harder really than a 12 year or 11 year old but the way I described the way I felt then was it was like being deaf and dumb because I couldn't hear and I couldn't speak because you couldn't didn't understand anything anyone was saying to you and you couldn't speak to them because you had no words and it, it, yeah I guess it was a, a, a very difficult but interesting and something that's so topical now. I mean, how many children are going, how many people are going through that all over the world, the immigration and uh, refugees and, and so on. So, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, the most recent book I think that you've got out is the one called One Summer in Crete. Yeah. And it very much is a story of love, betrayal and revenge. And as you mentioned, it's dual timeline. Carly goes back to the Mediterranean first as a journalist and then to visit family. But she's had a disappointment in life and she's kind of having a little bit of recuperation, R&R, so to speak, as well as working. But she comes across some family secrets, just exactly what you've been referring to. The Mediterranean seems to be a place of rest and restoration, you know, health and restoration. And in several of your books, it seems as if people go back there seeking peace or seeking to lick their wounds and recover from a disappointment. Would that be also a fair observation? Yes, definitely. And I suppose that's a thing that I draw from my life because when I go back there, I do feel healed and, and feel, you know, the sun and the sea. And it is a, a sanctuary. And I think it is I think it is for quite a lot. I mean, let's face it, we live in England, we live in a country that we don't see the sun so often. And when we do, we, we rejoice. So people do enjoy and feel healed when they're in the sun. And I think that's what my books do a little bit. And, and bringing in a kind of cultural sort of knowledge. I suppose I'm trying to uh, install some kind of learning. I mean, you learn about a culture, you learn about a different people, a way of life, a different type of living. And it is, I try to give an escape to the reader. My books, are, I think there are times they are dark, but they always go to the light. I, I like the light. I don't want to keep it to the darkness. So... Yeah. Yes, and as well as the secret of happiness, though, as you mentioned, they have a darker side, and that often comes from that conflict between the benefits of a, a really stable culture and sometimes the way that it doesn't like to face up to things and it hides away secrets or it refuses to change. And that's the way the darker side seems to come through. In the book before this one, The Orange Groves, yeah. Stella goes back home and uncovers a scandal from an earlier generation that is still being hidden away and causing heartache today. So you are acknowledging too, aren't you, that there are some aspects of the culture that maybe don't um, work so well for human happiness. Absolutely, absolutely, especially in the past. I mean, there was a lot of sexism and oppression for, for women in the past, and I think that comes across. I try and show that. And, and you see, I also write, I mean, I write about Greece and, as you say, the Mediterranean on the whole. I, I incorporate Italy and Spain, but Cyprus is... A country that is, it's very, it's torn because it's a divided country and it 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 has a lot of issues to talk about. It, first of all, it's still politically very, it's not in a happy place in terms of politics because the capital of the island, it's, the, it's still the last city in the world that is still divided. It's not a... a, 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 a it's divided into two. It has the two communities, the Turkish community and the Greek community. And there also lends itself for so many stories and 
and and sadness and possibly also hope. I think I tried to show that in my last book, as you said, the one between the between the orange groves, talking about the two communities. So, as you say, there is there is also sadness and darkness in quite a lot of these stories that I tell. But I try and be optimistic and try and give hope that things will improve. Yes, it seems to me that you're asking the question of how can we preserve the best of what culture offers while also acknowledging the pitfalls, that there are traditions that make families strong, but also that can allow wrongs to fester. That's probably the area that your territory that you're very much working in, isn't it? Yes, it, it absolutely. And there are many good things. I mean, the friendship and companionship and looking after the old and the, the family is always, it's paramount and it's in the centre of most of the Mediterranean countries. It's waning a little bit. The West has definitely had an effect on everything. The values of the, of the family and the grandparents and children and the family is very much a central point of the Mediterranean lifestyle and I suppose also of my books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's also a very strong appreciation of food that comes through. And I noticed online that you have been putting some traditional Cypriot recipes online. So talk a bit about the food. Oh, yeah. Well, of course, the food, it's, you know, if you've been to, if you know any Greek people or Italians or Spaniards, you know that food is incredibly important. And uh, the Greeks, absolutely, they show love. You know, that's how you show love. It's by cooking. And uh, and it was during the, um, so I bring it into my books, because everybody, apart from loving and living and being on, you know, in the sunshine, you also eat. Everybody loves to eat. And during the lockdown, um, when I we were in London, we were locked down for quite a long period of time, and it was a very hot summer last year. And so that's when I thought I will bring some of my mother's recipes and share them with my readers and with people because I do use I do use recipes and, and just talk about food in my books. And I thought that was it was gave me something to do actually because I, I it was very little we weren't doing anything we were just um locked in the at home and lucky if you have a garden which I did so yeah and I think food is important I think it's you know one of the joys of life yeah very much a lot of scenes are centered in the books around tables because the meeting around the table is such a strong family uh activity isn't of it of course of course it is and yeah it as i said it's the way you show love i think by feeding i know i'm like that with my sons um the minute they walk into the house i have to find out what they want to eat and can i cook them can i give them something immediately it's just it's a kind of it's a maternal thing it's a family thing it's a greek thing 
<laughs> yeah. So has the COVID pandemic affected your writing very much? I mean, I'm just wondering if you like to research individual books and whether that's been interfered with. Well, yes, because I usually like to, I've always troubled for my, for researching my books. I mean, the, I went to the two islands that I wrote about the Crete and Icaria for my last book, One Summer in Crete. And the previous one was uh, also set uh, partly in Istanbul. So I went to Istanbul and walked the streets. And I think it's very important to to feel, to, to research it in that way. And also I read a lot. This, the lockdown has, a, the effect was, yeah, there was I felt there was less stimulation because to write, you need to be stimulated. You need to talk to people. You need to go out and meet with other people and, and communicate and travel. So there's been a little bit of status, uh, a little bit of that. I feel I'm writing. I'm in the middle of writing another novel, but I'm taking my time over it uh, a little it feels that it's taking more time, but that's okay. That's actually quite pleasurable as well in itself. Yeah. So. Yeah. And the very first book, Among the Lemon Leaves, had a very strong historic element to it, probably probably a bit more historical than some of the others. Would that be right? It began in Crete at the beginning of the 20th century and it went through to Naples at the end of Second World, of Second World War. How did you research that one? Um, I researched it by reading a lot of books and by, it took, that one took the longest to write. And yeah, I mean, I, I don't know anything about the Second World War, but I read many, many books about it and spoke to people who lived through it. I was friends of my father's and also just discussions Obviously, I've lived, I've been to Italy. I, I write about Italy. I've been to Naples, but I wasn't there during the Second World War. But countries don't change. Places still retain their identity. And I think they, you know, Greek islands, um, cities that have been through a lot. Um, but actually, my second book, Secrets Under the Sun, that also has quite a a historic, it's more about is the history of it's historic, but it's Cyprus really. As you, yeah, I, as you say, the the first one had more of the, but this, but my second book, uh, Secrets Under the Sun, also talks about the Spanish Civil War. So there is, I always bring some kind of historic element in the in the book, but through people, through their lives, and through their you know, their strives. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned about, you know, how some books take longer to write than others. Have you noticed that as you've developed as a writer of fiction that your process of writing has changed very much or do you still approach it in much the same way? Um, I No, I approach it much the, sa- the same way. Other, some are faster than others because of deadlines. If you have a very short deadline, depending if you've taken too long to write the one before, and therefore, but pretty much my my style, my process is pretty much the same. The one I'm writing at the moment, I'm taking it slower. 
And that's, but it is intentional. I want to take it slower because I want to savor it, as it were. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yes. When you say it's much the same, so tell us a little bit about your process. Well, I come, I, I come up with an idea, a, a plot line. I think somehow, again, as I said before, ideas come by talking to people, by meeting people, by being out and about. That's how they come to me. I might hear a, a word by somebody, like the the. the one summer in Crete, I was in Cyprus at the time and I was meeting lots of young women in their sort of third, early third, in their thirties, who were in relationships, who were thinking about starting a family. And I thought, okay, being kind of conflicted or wanting one person, one of the partners wanted the other one not. And I thought, okay, this is a subject. This is something that's happening at the moment. So that gave me some idea that, so you you start with a, a little thought and then it just grows. And then once I start writing, I don't always, because it's fiction, although I have ideas and I have characters and I I don't plan them to such an extent that it's written in sand. Sometimes it changes and minor characters who you think they're going to be just a minor character becomes a major character and it visits you and it won't let you go and you need to expand on that. So it's quite organic in a way. It's linear in one way that I do have a story to tell, but it's organic in another way that the story can change as, as I'm writing it. I don't know if that makes sense to you. I mean, you're a writer. So. Oh, definitely. Yeah, definitely. It's just interesting the different ways that people approach things. And sometimes, you know, you might start out being a slightly more planning it out sort of person. And then as you develop a little bit of confidence, you become a bit more confident about letting the story tell itself I think it is more enjoyable to let the story tell itself than to try and be the one that bosses everybody around isn't it yeah well I think so my um, my ex-husband uh, was a writer he wrote children's books but he planned it all out he even had he you know he had uh, everything written up on boards and stuff and he was very very formula and I met a, a very brilliant Greek writer called Panos Karnesis he writes brilliant books and I remember I was interviewing him. It was when I first was writing my very first book, Making Sense. And I asked him questions like you're asking me. And he said, he said to me, every day is an adventure. I don't know what's going to happen. And I, it really excited me. I thought, oh, my God, that's, that's how I was starting to write my first book. And I thought perhaps he was wrong that I wasn't so rigid because that's what I thought writers do they plan everything out and they follow everything to the to the last you know word but he said I don't I just and every day is an adventure and I thought okay I'm gonna follow that that's a really really wonderful advice or way of doing it talk to me yeah 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 that's great it just it's probably just the time to move on a little bit from 
not talking about the specific books to your wider career. And it's really interesting that you mention meeting that writer. In terms of your wider career, you mentioned some great names at the beginning, like David Bailey. Tell us one or two of the highlights of that, those all those years in magazines. Who were the people that were most memorable that you either worked with or interviewed? Oh, my God. There were so many, but David Bailey definitely, and he still is a friend, somebody I've kept in touch with over the years. Well, I was a young, um, I just left art school. I was a young designer on a magazine and then I was promoted. And suddenly I was this young, in my early 20s, art director. And I was commissioning David Bailey, the great David Bailey, who I was learning about <laughs> my art, you know, at art school. And I couldn't believe it. And he was wonderful. And I I got to know him and I got to know his one of his wives, the beautiful Mary Helvin at the time. And then he he got, you know, he had many beautiful wives, didn't he? Oh, so many amazing. <laughs> and his late, his, his wife that he's been with for the last 35 years is a, 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 was a top model who I'd met modeling as I was working as a creative director. Her name is Catherine Dyer, Catherine Bailey. And she's, she stayed one of my dearest friends. We are very close. And so that was one definite highlight. And also Maria Testino, who you probably, your listeners know, he photographed Princess Diana and he, Madonna and all the great, he, he's brilliant fashion photographer. Well, he was right at the beginning of his career. We worked together. I, I, because I was very young when I started working in magazines, I worked with some of the uh, contemporaries. I mean, David Bailey was a great photographer when I met him, but there were people like Maria Testino, who was more of a contemporary, and we worked together at the beginning. There were many uh, and models. Naomi Campbell, I interviewed her. I photographed her and interviewed, you know, worked with her, and there were all the greats. I mean, it was a wonderful time to work in magazines. It was the 90s was a great time to work in magazines, I have to say. I think the industry has changed now. And I don't know what it's like in New Zealand, but in England, definitely it's not it's not quite as it was when we were doing it. Um, at the you know, now 80, late 80s and 90s was a great time to work in magazines, I think. Yes, yes. Look, is there one thing you've done in your writing career more than any other that you would see as the secret of your success? Oh, I think the fact that I, what I did was, I sort of reinvented myself. I mean, I didn't do it intentionally. I didn't go out there to reinvent myself. It's the fact that people say uh, it's never too late to start something new and I guess that's what I did I went from one career to another and at the other you know an older age I mean I wasn't a kid and I, I spent my working uh, 20 years working in magazines and then suddenly I'm doing something completely different really we used to say uh, you probably know this from your being an editor it was always the pictures and the words and it was the dichotomy between the two 
and being the designer, the artist, the visual person, and then there were the writers, and they were always fighting who is more important. So I I used to always say, as a creative director, I used to say, well, the pictures are more important because nobody's going to read any of the words if the pictures are no good. So in magazines I'm talking about. So, yeah, so I basically jumped that threshold. I went from pictures to words and... I'm delighted. And I made my father very proud because he always believed that I was a good writer when I was young. And he was very pleased when I wrote my first book. So that was a very nice thing to have done. Yeah. Look, that's gorgeous. That's gorgeous. Look, we're starting to come to the end of our time together. And I always do like to ask uh, the people that we talk to about their reading tastes because this is the joys of binge reading. Tell us a little bit about the books that you like to read for pleasure. And are you a binge reader at any stage? Well, I have to say, while I'm writing, I find it really difficult to read for pleasure because I do a lot of reading for research. So I have loads of books and I read and I stop and then I read something else. But since the COVID, since the lock, we've been on these lockdowns for a few quite a few months on and off. I've read more than I've read in years and I've absolutely loved it. And I've read just for pleasure, you know, not for yeah, not for thinking, oh, this is research, this is what I have to learn. I have to learn about such a you know, this subject and this subject. So I love, I am very keen on Magub Mahfouz, the Egyptian author who wrote the Palace Trilogy, you know, the Egyptian, the Cairo trilogies. I love, I love his writing. Um, I am at the moment reading Kazuno, Kazuo Isaguru, the um, Clara Son. I don't know, that's his latest book. It's, it's sort of science fiction, kind of dystopia, but beautifully and simply written. I, I read everything and anything, really, that um, comes my way. Well, I, having said that, if it grabs me, I will not put it down. If it doesn't, I've learned to stop. When I was younger, I would never put a book down. Even if I wasn't enjoying it, I would have to read it till the end. Now, I don't. I think, okay, this is not doing it for me and I will stop. But yes, does that answer your question? It does. I've got another one, actually, which had never occurred to me until you were speaking because I'm not familiar with either of those authors that you've mentioned. I'll have to look them up. But um do you do you read now in English as your first language, or do you still enjoy um, reading? I suppose was it Greek Greek that you yes. spoke when you were a child? Yes, yeah. Greek. Oh yes, yes, yes. I do read. And another author is Nikos Kazantzakis, who wrote Zorba the Greek. I don't know if you've ever read yes. that book. Well, that yes. book is a masterpiece. Yeah. I've read. I read it over and over. It's one of those books that I will read over and over. There are. A few books that I would read over and over, actually. But I, I, I do read in Greek. I don't write in Greek, though, because not creatively. I can write a letter 
I can write and read, but I couldn't write creatively in Greek, which is strange because, well, I suppose it's not strange. I stopped learning it when I was 12, started learning English. So yes, not yes. it wasn't mature. Yeah, but I do read Greek literature. Yeah, I do read Greek books. Tell us what is next for Nadia, the writer. You've mentioned that you do have a new project. Can you talk a little bit about that? And how do you see the next 12 months unfolding for you? Well, I'm hoping to finish the book that I'm writing. It's another, it's in the same genre, but it's, it is set in Greece at a time. Uh, it's a time when I feel Greek history was quite dark in the in the. Uh, late 60s, early 70s, until 74, when Greece became a dictatorship. And it's a time when I don't think many people know about it. It's just that Greece was, there was a coup and they overthrew the government and there was a military coup. And and for several years, for something like eight years, Greece was in the, in the, grip of dictatorship it, it, it was a fascist regime a bit like you know franco or whatever but and it it was an it was an interesting time because there was a lot of there was a lot of art a lot of artists were being exiled and, and imprisoned and and there was you know they were not allowed to talk and to to bring any opposition to the regime and so on but obviously, it's not it's not about politics. My books are always about people and relationships. But that's what I'm doing at the moment, setting it in that. But back and forth, obviously, like I always do. But I do like doing other projects as well. I a project I did, which was over four years, was with a photographer that I used to work with years ago on the magazines, a photographer called Simon Brown. He's a, an amazing, he's an interior photographer. And we did we did a project that took over four years to complete. We traveled to Cyprus and we went to the very primitive villages up in the remote villages in the mountains and photograph very old people and how they live today. And the project was the vanishing face of Cyprus because these people were living these old, and they lived a long time, the Cypriots. They were all way, way in their 80s and 90s. And there were couples living as they were living 60, 70, 80 years ago, maybe turn of the century, you know, that nothing had changed very much. And I thought that we needed to document these the, these uh, people because once they die, their children are going to knock the houses down or at least renovate them and buy IKEA furniture and turn them into their holiday homes up in the mountains. But at the moment, they're still living as they always did. So we we had an exhibition at Cyprus Embassy in London and and a body of really beautiful photographs which are worthy of, you know, putting in the museum, in in art galleries and museums. 
And that was a project that I did with Simon. We traveled to Cyprus, you know, a couple of weeks at a time. And I did the research and the art directing and wrote the copy. And it was really lovely. So more things like that I can see that I could do in the future along with the writing. That sounds gorgeous. How recently was that exhibition? Oh, it was before COVID. So it was about three years ago. Okay, yeah. And have you managed to publish that as a book? No, we didn't. We haven't done it as a book. Do you know World of Interiors in London, the magazine World? Yes. Of, yeah. yes. They did a yeah. big double page, you know, they did four or five pages of it. And, and yeah, we, we haven't done it as a book, which we should really, but, uh, you know. You could indie publish that, you know, you could do it. I mean, you're ideally set up as the art director. I'm already getting enthusiastic yeah. about this idea because you could indie publish it yourself. Well, yeah, and also because the photographer, I mean, Simon Brown is a very, very well-known interiors photographer. So, the, yeah. you know, yeah. I mean, the pictures at the exhibition were sold and, he, you know, they're very, you know, they're sold to people or so. But, yeah, that could be something to, we should really do a, a, a book. I we, we did talk about doing a book, but... Yeah, <laughs> totally. because a, a, history, a record like that, particularly with wonderful photographs, it's a pity that it isn't going to have be more accessible to a lot of other people. I mean, I'd love to see those pictures. I agree with you. Okay, well, there you go. I'll put my mind to that. <laughs> <laughs> now, tell me, do you enjoy hearing from your readers and where can they communicate with you online or offline? Oh, I absolutely love, I mean, that's what makes being, a you know, it makes everything worthwhile when you have messages from your readers. I have an Instagram. I have my Instagram and also my author's Facebook page, which I think that's how you got in touch with me, right? Through Yes, yes. We'll we'll make sure all those links are in the show notes that we publish with this. But people would be able to find you by searching for you as Nadia Marks author, wouldn't they? Yeah, and my my Instagram is Nadia underscore Marks underscore. And then if they just uh, type my name, it'll come up. And the Instagram is really lovely because um, lots of people who do reviews post things and they message me. And it's just really lovely to connect with, with readers. It, it, it just makes the whole act of writing you know, such a pleasure and worth doing. Yeah. That's wonderful, Nadia. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audio services at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. 
Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone as a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at Abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.